Uh, today, we are going to land the plane, um, at least for a little while. The plane might take off again um, in a little bit, but today we land the plane. And the plane I am talking about is Life of Paul Series 2. Um, today is the conclusion of a 13-week series that we have been doing called The Life of Paul. Um, and we, so we're taking a little break. We've not finished the life of Paul, but we are taking a break for now. And we've done this already once before, just so you know. Those of you who are new, maybe you don't know this, but at the beginning of the year, we started with a series just called Life of Paul. There was no series two. We just talked about the early part of life, the early part of Paul's life. And we talked about the first missionary journey that he went on. And then after it was done, we took a little break and we talked about some other topics. And then after we were done with that, we just picked up right where we left off. And so we started preaching right where we left off on the first series, and we did Life of Paul Part Series 2, and we have now done 13 weeks of that, and we're at that point again where we're going to take a break, and then we will pick up the um, second part of his life. So this, or actually, this is the second part of his life, the third. So he did the first missionary journey in the first series. In this series, we've talked about the second missionary journey of Paul, and so then... If the Lord permits, we will come back to this later on, and Life of Paul Series 3 will be about the third missionary journey um, that Paul went on. So that is the plan. The main reason that we are doing it is, first of all, because I think it's good to take breaks every once in a while. Um, I don't know. I hope it's good for you. You know, sometimes you go to a church, and it's like, hey, it's Romans part 150, and you're like, you know, we... we we can't take it anymore. And so I think it's good to switch it up every now and again. And I do have some other stuff that I would like to preach on. I want to talk about the topic of doubt in, in October from both the Christian point of view and non-Christian point of view. Um, so that's the main reason that we are taking a break. But I also want to add that we are now at the perfect stopping point to end this this part of this series. Because what I am about to read to you, today's passage, is the passage where Paul finishes up his second missionary journey and he goes back home. Like that's the verse that we're going to end at. Paul gets, goes back home. Ah, and so this is the perfect place. We're not going to, it's not like we're going through the life of Paul and we got to the place where, you know, whatever, he gets onto the ship and they, they come up and he pulls out a sword and we go, okay, we'll just take a break for three months. Like that's not what's happening. He is going to go home and, ah, and we're going to take a break there. And then when we pick back up with the life of Paul later on, we'll pick up um, when he goes on his third missionary journey. So if you have your Bible with you, you go to Acts chapter 18. This morning's passage is going to be Acts 18, verses 12 through 22. However, I'm going to start reading in verse 7. I'm going to reread five verses from last week's text. Um, hopefully, you who were here last week will recognize those verses and go, oh yeah, I remember that from last week. And the reason I want to reread them is I just want you to see how we're going to read last week's verses, and I want you to see how they just flow right into this week's verses. So Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 7. It says, so he left there... And it, the, the he is Paul, and the there is the synagogue in the city of Corinth, okay? Um, he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed the Lord along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. Then the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So you remember that? Does that sound familiar from last week? Yeah. Right. So then, very next sentence. Here it is. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the judge's bench. This man, they said, persuades people to worship God contrary to the law. As Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of a crime or of a moral evil, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you Jews. 
But if these are questions about words, names, and your own law, see to it yourselves. I don't want to be a judge of such things. So he drove them from the judge's bench. And then they all seized Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the judge's bench. But none of these things concerned Gallio. So Paul, having stayed on for many days, said goodbye to the brothers and sailed away to Syria. That's the region that he's, his home church is from. Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He shaved his head at Sencrie because he had taken a vow. When they reached Ephesus, he left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and engaged in discussion with the Jews. And though they asked him to stay for a while longer, he declined. But he said goodbye and stated, if, um, I'll come back to you again if God wills. Then he set sail from Ephesus. On landing at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And Antioch is the city his home church is from. He is now finally back home. And so that's our passage. And as we talk about it today, I want to give you a little bit of an outline because there's quite a bit that happens in there. Um, I'm going to break this down into four different scenes. There are four things that happen in this part of the story. So scene one is the Jewish Corinthians attack Paul. Scene two is Paul shaves his head and sails to Ephesus. Scene three is Paul briefly evangelizes Ephesus and then heads home. And then scene four is Paul makes it home. So we'll talk about those and we'll talk about those things in that order. So let's start with the Jewish Corinthians attack Paul. This we see in verse 12. It says, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. So proconsul is a word that we've already talked about in the series once before. And you may remember it. It's this person who's basically a governor of a particular area or a particular territory. In this case, his, the area that he's, he's a Roman official because of the Roman Empire who's in, is who's in charge. So he is a governor of an area called Achaia, Achaia being um, the area that Corinth is in. Okay, so he's the governor of that area. Achaia would be, I think, what we now would call southern Greece, the bottom half of Greece. So he's the um, person that's in charge of that area, and his name is Gallio. So he's just letting you know this is the person. Okay, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the judge's bench. Right? So these people are really upset at Paul, and so they decide to attack him. But I want you to notice when you look at how they attacked him, how did they do it? Notice the people who attack Paul in this verse, they do not do it directly. Rather, they try to persuade the government to do it. Have you noticed that? Right? So they, these people are so upset at him, and I can't believe he's teaching this, and I can't believe he's saying these things about Jesus. But instead of handling it directly, instead of saying, well, what are we going to do to hurt him? We'll take him to the, in the back alley and we'll beat him with a baseball bat. Like, that's not what they do. They try to persuade the government to attack him on their behalf. And this happens repeatedly in the story, like repeatedly through the book of Acts. I don't know how many times. I didn't go back to count. I'm going to show you three, this one and two other ones. But there are other times other than the ones I'm going to show you. I'll just show you the ones that have been kind of recently. If you go back to chapter 16, when Paul was in Philippi, I want you to notice this. He's in Philippi. There's a slave girl there that has a demon in her. And Paul casts the demon out. And then this is what happens. Uh, Acts 16, verse 19. When her owners saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to who? To the authorities. They didn't just say, oh, I can't believe he did this. Let's, let's attack him. No, they dragged him to the authorities. And they tried to make sure that that's the people who you, you all need to punish him. If you look at Acts chapter 17, when he's in Thessalonica, it says in verse 6, when they did not find them, so this is the angry people and they're looking for Paul and Silas and they don't find them, they dragged Jason, that's the guy whose house they were staying at, and some of the brothers before who? The city officials. So they're angry and they grab Jason, but who they, what do they do? They don't just drag him anywhere. They drag him before the city officials 
shouting, these men have turned the world upside down, have come here too. And then now here we are in chapter 18, verse 12. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul. What did they do? They brought him to the judge's bench. And so this is something we see over and over again in the book of Acts. I think it's significant for us to notice, like we probably should notice, there is something in the wickedness of humanity that wants to not only mistreat our enemies, but we want to get other people to join us and we want to do it in ways that feel official and authorized. That we not only want to mistreat our enemies, that's true, and which is the opposite of what Jesus said to do, right? Jesus said to do what with your enemies? Love. Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and there's something within humanity, and we see it all the time manifesting in all sorts of places and people, that we not only don't want to love our enemies, but we want to mistreat them, but we don't just want to mistreat them, we want to get other people to join us, and we want to do it in ways that feel like official and sanctioned and authorized. And I think we should watch out for that. We need to be aware of that when it's happening to us, and we need to make sure that we are not doing that to others when we shouldn't. So, verse 13, this man, they said, so this is them in front of the judge's bench, this man, they said, persuades people to, per- to worship God contrary to the law, right? We want you to hurt him. We want you to punish him. Why? Because he's telling people to worship differently than the way we do, right? He's teaching different stuff than what we teach. We don't like what he's saying about God. We don't like what he's saying about the Messiah and Jesus. He, he's persuading people to worship dip- differently than what we think. You got to do something about that. And he says he's persuading people to worship contrary to what? To the law. What law are they referring to there? Are they referring to Jewish law? Or are they referring to Roman law? What law is he breaking? Well, I guess we don't know for sure because he doesn't say, but Gallio definitely takes it to be Jewish law. You can tell by what he says. Look at verse 14. As Paul was about to open his mouth, I guess he was going to defend himself, and then he didn't need to. Gallio, the proconsul, right, the governor, he said to the Jews... If it were a matter of a crime or of a moral evil, you get what he's saying? He's saying, if this were something that the Roman Empire thought was wrong, right? If this was against the Roman Empire's law, then sure, I would need to listen to you guys and and do something about this, right? If this were a matter of a crime or of a moral evil, if this was something that goes against Roman law, if this was something that we Roman people cared about, then yeah, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you guys. But if these are questions about words, names, and what does he say? And your own law. See to it yourselves. I don't want to be a judge of such things, right? He's sitting there and going, listen, if this is something us Roman people cared about, if this was something against the Roman Empire's laws, then sure, I'd do something about it. But if this is just your words and your names, and well, he's calling Jesus the Messiah. No, that's, he's not the Messiah because this Messiah is supposed to be like this. And the Old Testament says this about Jesus and or about the Messiah. And this is what you guys are saying. Like if you're just arguing about your names and your law, if this is an interreligious disagreement, get out of my courtroom. Right? That's not, no, this is, this is a place for like things we care about. This is the stuff about, this is crimes and moral evil. You guys arguing about who your Jewish Messiah is, is none of my business. If this is something about your law, you see it to yourselves. I don't want to be the judge of such things. And then verse 16, it says, so he j- drove them from the judge's bench. I think that was his way of saying like case dismissed with prejudice. Like do, do not come back again with silly things like this anymore. Right? I am the governor of this area, and the last thing I want is you guys with your religious disagreements wasting my time. Get out of here. Don't do these things anymore. And then verse 17, it says, And then they all seized Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the judge's bench. But none of these things concerned Gallio. What is that? Who is Sosthenes, and why is he getting beaten? 
Well, the passage says who Sosthenes is. It says the leader of the synagogue. So we know that much. Now, there had been a leader of the synagogue that was mentioned a few verses earlier, back up in verse 8. Anybody remember that guy's name, just for fun? Yeah, Crispus. Okay, so we had Crispus. He was the leader of the synagogue. Now it says Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue. What's that about? Well, if you remember in Crispus' story, Crispus did what? He converted to Christianity, didn't he? Right? He, had le- he was the synagogue leader, and then he went next door and joined Team Paul, which was Team Jesus, right? Like he, he converted over to Christianity and left the synagogue. So now we have this guy named Sosthenes. I don't know if this is Crispus' replacement, the guy that they appointed, um, after Crispus, you know, defected and went over to the other side, or if there were multiple synagogue leaders and this is, this is one of the guys that was left. But that's who he is. He's the leader of the synagogue. And it says they beat him. Now, who beat him? What's the passage say? It says they all seized Sosthenes. So who's the all? Like, who are these people? The all that did it. And, and I don't know because it doesn't say. There are, like, basically two theories. One is all means all the Jewish people, and the other all is all the Greek people. Those are the two ways I think that you can take it. So all the Jewish people interpretation would mean this, that the Jewish people were there in the synagogue and they were upset and we've got to get Paul to stop saying Jesus is the Messiah, da, da, da. And so then they all show up to this, to Gallio's court, you know, to the judge's bench. And maybe Sosthenes was the one that presented the case. You know, he's the leader of the synagogue. Maybe he's the one that did most of the talking, but there's all the Jewish people talking about this Messiah and contrary to our law and you got to do something about this. And the idea is when it was case dismissed, don't talk to me about this stuff anymore, that, that the Jewish people beat one of their own, that they beat their own synagogue leader, maybe for how bad of a job he handled the situation, I don't know. The other theory is that they all means the Greek people. That is, after Gallio said case dismissed, it was his people, his bailiffs, his, you know, the soldiers, the people that worked for the governor, that they were the ones that beat Sosthenes. Like when he said, hey, quit wasting my time, they went, you know, and roughed him up. The people that were on Gallio's side. I don't know. I don't know which one it is. And so for the reason that I don't know, it's hard to guess what was the reason that they beat him. Um, But I'm glad it's in here. I think it's helpful that this verse is in here because it shows us something. Whoever it is that's beating him, the point here is it says these people are beating him in front of the judge's bench. That's the place where Gallio just was, right? So, So Gallio said case dismissed, and it sure sounds like they are beating this guy right in front of him. After the case, they are beating a guy, guy with no trial, right? There was no trial on Sosthenes, and they're beating him in front of Gallio, and Gallio doesn't even care. Okay, well, why does that matter? Here's why I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful for us, to, as we read this passage, to realize that Gallio is not, a, very likely, he is not a righteous and just judge trying to protect Paul here. Because that's one, when you look at this paragraph, Paul is, ends up being protected because of Gallio. Gallio saying case dismissed causes Paul to be protected from the government attacking him in Corinth. Paul does get protected in this, in this section because of this, um, this, whatever, this court case, whatever you want to call it, this, this trial. Gallio is the one that causes that to happen. But when you see that at the end of it, they're beating one of the guys and Gallio doesn't care. You can tell this is not, this is not because Gallio is going, oh, well, I care. Paul and Paul hasn't done anything wrong and justice and we need to be fair and Christianity is being persecuted and let's do the right thing. That's probably not what Gallio's doing, right? He's just saying, you guys are wasting my time. Get out of here. And then somebody starts getting beaten. He's like, I don't care. And the reason why that matters is this, because we look at this passage and we're trying to think, what, is, what, how did, what did Luke think when he was writing all this down? And this is what I think you need to see as you read the story. Paul is being protected in this story, but not because Gallio's on his side, because God's on his side. I think that this is God keeping the promise that he made up in verse 10. 
Remember up in verse 10 what happened? This is from last week. Go up to verse 10 and just look at it. This is uh, God appears to Paul with a night vision and he says to Paul, I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in this city. There are lots of times that Paul had been harmed up to this point, but here he is in Corinth and Paul says, in this case, while you're in this city, I just want you to know, no one is going to lay a hand on you here. I have many people in this city. No one's going to hurt you. God had promised that to Paul. So then, however long it happens till this happens, I'm going to guess maybe it was about a year and a half because it says he was there for a year and six months and then this is the next paragraph. So maybe about a year and a half later, Paul's going, well, this is going great. Nobody's harming me. And then what happens? The Jewish people drag him to the judge's bench and I'm sure he's sitting there thinking, uh-oh, they're about to harm me. But God said they weren't going to harm me, but it looks like they're about to harm me. And then before he even gets a chance to defend himself, Gallio jumps in and causes him to be protected while he's in Corinth. What's going on here? It's not, the point isn't Gallio's so great. The point is God is so great. He arranged the circumstances just so. He told Paul, they're not going to be able to hurt you in this city. And then they tried to hurt him and they were unable to hurt him in this city. Just like God said. So that's the first scene. Then we move on to the next one. Paul shaves his head and sails to Ephesus. Let's get it. Verse 18. So Paul, having stayed on for many days, said goodbye to the brothers and sailed away to Syria. Priscilla and Aquila were with him. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. He shaved his head at Sencrea because he had taken a vow. Why is that in there? Like, what is that about? Why did he shave his head? You know, what, what is, why is this in the story? Why, why did Paul shave his head? Well, if you look at the story, this is what it says. It says he shaved his head because he had taken a vow. Okay, well, that clears it up, right? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. What vow did he take? And why is he shaving his head? And again, he don't, I, we don't know for sure because this is all Luke says, but, but a really good guess would be a Nazarite vow. That's the only thing that I'm aware of in the Old Testament that sort of matches this. In the Hebrew culture, um, going back to the book of Numbers, there was a vow that you could take before God called the Nazarite vow. And you can read, I read it this week, it's in Numbers chapter 6. So if you want to look up and learn about Nazarite vows, go to Numbers chapter 6 this afternoon. Um, I'm not going to read it to you, but I'm just going to summarize it because I, I just read it this week. Um, the Nazarite vow was something within the Hebrew culture that would be done where someone would come and they would make an official vow before the Lord. And they would make a vow for a particular period of time. And during the particular period of time, there were the things that they would do, I guess, to mark out that this is a vow for this amount of time. They were not to drink alcohol of any kind during the time period of the vow. They were not to drink wine or beer. In fact, they weren't even supposed to eat anything related to a grape at all. Like not wine, not even a raisin. Okay, nothing. No alcohol, no grapes, and don't cut your hair. All of this was to be done for the length of the vow. So the hair goes out long, um, and they don't, eat, they don't drink wine, and they don't eat the grapes. And then at the end of the period of time of the vow, when the vow is done, they would go to the temple, they would go to the priest, they would finish up the vow, there would be like a ceremonial way that they would end the vow with a sacrifice. And um, the person would, once the vow was done, they would resume drinking alcohol again, they would cut their hair or shave their head, and they would even take the hair and put it into the sacrifice, like into the fire of the sacrifice. So they're sacrificing whatever animal plus throwing the hair in there. And then that was like the official ending of the vow. And when you look at this, it sounds like it sort of matches here that he is now at the, the tail end of a vow and here he is shaving his head because he had taken the vow. The only thing that is sort of weird and doesn't fit it perfectly is that he it seems like he did it a little too early. Because the way that the vow ends is, the, it seems like you would shave your head or cut your hair 
um, close to where the temple is because you're supposed to then have a priest and do a sacrifice and throw the hair in there. And so he's not anywhere near Jerusalem at this point, right? It says he's in Sencrie. He is like miles and miles and miles away from Jerusalem. So to cut the hair here is a little weird. If he's going to finish up the vow, he's got to go to Jerusalem and, and do the rest of it. So I don't know. I don't know if he took the hair and like put it in a little bag and saved it for the next time he's going to go to Jerusalem in order to finish up the vow. But it could be that that's the kind of vow he was making, and this is the tail end of it. Um, and so it might be that the whole time he was in Corinth, that whole year and a half, he didn't drink alcohol and he grew out his hair the whole time. Um, the only thing that doesn't fit with that, because I was thinking about it this week, is later on when we read the letters he wrote back to the Corinthians, one of them talks about, like one of the letters he wrote, you can tell that when he was with the Corinthians the first time, one of the things he taught them was the Lord's Supper. He taught them the Lord's Supper with the, the wine and the bread. Like he did that, and you can tell because he refers back to the time he taught them that, and doing that would have required wine drinking. So I don't really know exactly what's going on here. I'm going to go ahead and just say, well, it fits some things, but not everything perfectly. I don't know. Let's just leave it mysterious, just as Luke does, okay? Shaved his head because he'd taken a vow. Got it. Verse 19. When they reached Ephesus, so this is now the next part, he briefly evangelizes Ephesus on the way home. When they reached Ephesus, he left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and engaged in discussion with the Jews. And though they asked him to stay for a longer time, he declined but said goodbye. What's going on here? He says, I only have up there now. Okay, good enough. It's even bigger, actually. Um, so when he's there, um, he, is, he goes to Ephesus, he starts preaching the gospel, and it goes well, right? There are a lot of times where he goes, and it does not go very well. But here in Ephesus, he's sharing the gospel with the Jews, and they're not rejecting him. They're not rioting. They're not pushing him out of town. They said, why don't you stay for longer, right? Why don't you stay longer? And he doesn't so weird. There's all these times where they're kicking out of town. This time he shows up, he shares the gospel. They're like, we want to hear more about this. And he's like, I got to go. So I don't know. Maybe that hair was like burning a hole in his pocket and he like needed to get to Jerusalem and finish up that vow. I don't know for sure, but he is in a hurry to get out of there. And so he does. And he says, if I got more time later, I'll do it later. Right? He said, um, before he said goodbye and stated, I'll come back to you again. What does he say next? If God wills. I want you to notice that. He says he will return if God wills. There, like you may have noticed that I often talk like that. I often say, this is what we'll do if God wills, or this is our plan for next year if, the, if God lets us do it. And the reason that I talk like that and the reason that I think Paul talks like that is because the Bible teaches us that we are not to act as if we are in charge of the future, but rather recognize that he is in charge of the future. We are not to act like we're in charge of what happens tomorrow. We have to acknowledge he's the one that's in charge of what happens tomorrow. I was just talking with my daughter about this. I think it was yesterday. We were in a swimming pool, and I don't even remember the, the thing we were talking about, but, but I said something like, well, yeah, I plan on doing that later. And then she said something. I don't remember how she phrased it, but it was probably a little too sassy for her age. But, <laughs> but she said something kind of like, you know, like, oh, oh, you plan on doing it later. You know what I mean? Like, well, what, is, what does that mean? Like, are you going to do it later or, or not? And I said to her, oh, let me explain what I mean. I mean, I am right now planning on doing that later, but I don't know for sure if I'm going to do that later. I don't know the future. Who's the only person who knows the future? And she said, God. And I said, that's why. Like, I, I, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We can't say, oh, I'm for sure going to do this next month. We don't know. He's the only one that knows. And we need to acknowledge that. Okay, final scene. Paul goes home. Verse 22, 
On landing at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. So it's interesting. It says he lands at Caesarea, that's a port city, and then he went up and greeted the church. Which church? He just calls it the church. Which church? It's obviously not the one in Antioch because after he greets the church, then he went down to Antioch, which is where his home church is. So which church did he visit before he went down to Antioch? And I think pretty much every scholar thinks the answer to that is Jerusalem. He went to the Jerusalem church and then went down to Antioch. The Jerusalem church would have been considered up in relationship to Antioch with the way that they would talk back then. Um, also, I think it's the only church that would be called the church. Like it was the, fam- it was the mothership. Like it was the place where all this began. Jerusalem was. This was the beginning of all. This is the only church that you could call the church and they would know like, oh, oh the, like the church in Jerusalem. Um, also, Caesarea gives it away because that port is the port you would go to if you're going to Jerusalem. Caesarea is way out of the way to go to Antioch. If you're just trying to go straight home to Antioch, you do not go to Caesarea. That's way too far south. Caesarea is where you'd go if you were trying to go to Jerusalem on your way to Antioch. So that looks what, like what he does. And, and if he did go to Jerusalem, I mean, that would be the thing where the hair thing would happen. And then he would go to Antioch, which he did. <sighs> and now he's home. And that concludes the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And that concludes our series. Let me go ahead and end now, just giving you a little bit of application. What does this have to do with our lives? And as far as application goes, I think there are two ways that I could go with this. I realized this week, one way that I could go with this is I could just apply this particular passage to our lives, because that's the thing I usually do here. Like usually when I preach a sermon, I teach what the passage says, and then I talk about, okay, now what does this passage have to do with our life? That's what I normally do in every sermon. However, I realized this week that this particular sermon is the conclusion of a 13-week series. I could, rather than asking, what does this passage have to do with our life, I could kind of say, what, what does this whole series have to do with our life? Like we've, over the past, like, what is it, two and a half months, we have learned Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 17, and Acts chapter 18. We could ask the question, what do we get from those four chapters? If we, instead of like, you know, zooming into the text, if we were to kind of look back and go, wait, what, did the, what do all four, all the stuff we've learned the past few weeks, what does it teach us? And so I'm going to do both. I'll quickly do the this passage part. If, this, if I were to just talk about this passage alone, I would say this as the application. Trust God. He keeps his promises. This passage teaches us that God keeps his promises. In verse 10, God says, I will protect you in Corinth. Then when they get down to verse 14, 15, and 16, what happens? The people try to harm him, and they are unable to. Why? Because God said, I'm going to protect you in Corinth. We should trust God. He keeps his promises just as he kept his promises to Paul in this chapter. But if I were going to talk about the whole series and all four chapters and ask, how does that apply to your life? This is what I would do. In fact, I wrote up a little chart that I want to show you. This is what I think would be the application for the whole series. The gospel is worth arguing for, traveling for, suffering for, communing for, working for. When you look over these chapters, and that's what I did, I just kind of flipped through them and looked at them. The gospel is worth arguing for and traveling for and suffering for and communing for and working for. These are all things that we see Paul doing in his second missionary journey. So let me explain what I mean, and let's start with the word the gospel. When I say the gospel is worth, let me go ahead and define. What is the gospel? The gospel is the message of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news about Jesus. And I'm gonna, there are lots of different ways to phrase it. There are lots of different angles by which you could explain the gospel. I'm going to go ahead and choose to explain it today, like in honor of our passage. I'm going to explain it like the way um, Paul did in the book of 2 Corinthians, because he's talking to the Corinthians here, right? 
Like that's where we just were. He was in Corinth. He was telling them about the gospel. So I want to go ahead and tell you the gospel, and I want to define it using kind of the verbiage and the concepts that Paul did when he taught the Corinthians the gospel. And this is what he taught them. He said to the Corinthians that he was an ambassador for God. That like God has a message for humanity. And Paul was the one that was given the message. He's not the only one that was given the message, but he's one of the people who is an ambassador. He is the messenger who is supposed to tell humanity, this is what God says. And this was the message. This is the way he phrased it to the Corinthians. He said, this is the, 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 the message from God as an ambassador is this that God is reconciling the world to himself. That's the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. So there is this world that is not right with God. We live in a world that is filled with wickedness, right? Filled with wicked people. And the good message from God through Jesus is... God has made a way for those of us who are wicked and not right with God to be able to be right with God. That's what, when God says he's reconciling the world to himself, that's part of it. Like the reconciling is like making the relationship right again. We do not naturally have a good relationship with God. We are his enemies. We are people who have rebelled against him and we're wicked. And God is making it to where we can have a right relationship with him by not counting our sins against us and saving us. That's the good news. That's the message humanity needs to know that God's reconciling the sinful world to himself. And that's a huge deal because God is holy and the world is sinful. This is a wicked world. We don't deserve God to say, hey, let's make make it to where our relationship is okay. And yet that's what he's announcing. I'm willing to make it to where we're okay. I'm willing to make it where we are reconciled, even though, in spite of our sin, even though we are wicked. And we are wicked, are we not? We are. Human beings are wicked. If you didn't know that, I'm glad you heard it here first. But I I honestly think you already know that. I'm going to prove to you that you know that. We know that humans are wicked. Whenever I talk to people, it's not very hard for me to convince people that that humanity is wicked. In fact, maybe you've had these conversations where you talk about things that are happening in the world and you go, have you ever said it? Like, people are dumb, right? People are awful. People are terrible. You hear these stories, and so it is, it's, I don't think it's ever been difficult. I've talked to a lot of people, and it's never been difficult for me to kind of convince people that this world is wicked because there's bad all over the world, and where's the bad coming from? And you, you can just look at the news. You just look at what's happening, and you just point out to people, like, there are people that are killing each other. There are people that are stealing from each other. There are, like, tyrants who are hurting their people. There are, there's genocide and racism and wars and like women and children that are getting blown up in the midst of a war that had nothing to do with it. And people that are in, like starving in places where there's plenty of food. And so you just point it out. And so like, that's the world we live in. Why is it that way? Because we're wicked. Who's wicked? It, because humans populate the world. It's not, it's not the, the mountains and the valleys and the squirrels that are causing all that. It's us. It's the human beings on the planet that are causing all that. We're the wicked ones. And so whenever I talk to people and say, isn't that true? I mean, yeah, everybody says, of course, yeah, we live in this terrible, wicked, wicked world. And then here's what's weird. A lot of times then you say to the, to the person that just admitted humanity is wicked and you say, now what about you? And they go, oh, well, no, not me. <laughs> Wait, but didn't you just say like the, the humanity's wicked? And I did, I did. And, and you're a human? I am. So you're one of the wicked ones? No, I, other humans, the other ones, not me. The other ones are bad. Have you seen this? It's crazy. At some point, we should, 
stop lying to ourselves and admit every single one of us in this room in, in small ways and large ways and medium ways are contributing to the sinfulness on this world, in this world in a way that rivers and valleys and woodchucks are not, right? We are contributing to the sinfulness of the world. We, at some point, we should take responsibility for it and say, yeah, I'm one of those people doing that. And you know you're doing it. You know you're sinful. And if you say, I don't know if I am, let me prove to you that you already know you're sinful. There are things that you do that when other people do them, you think it's wrong. Like routinely, you do things that other people, particularly when other people do it to you, you go, that's wrong, that's evil, right? That's wicked. You, you know it. Now, when you do it, you don't call it wicked. When, you know, no, when I do it, it's, you know, nuanced and complex and there's a whole story behind it. Let me explain, right? I've heard, I heard, I didn't make that up. I heard another pastor say that and I thought, that's so true, isn't it? Other people, like when, when we do it, there's a justification. When other people do it, that's wrong. Like we know it's wrong when they do it. And then we should be honest and realize, but, but we do too. We know what's right and wrong in us. We certainly can see it when other people are doing it. Every single one of us in this room is contributing to the sinfulness of this world. And so this is the good news. The gospel is that God looks down on that world filled with those wicked people and says to them, there is a way to be reconciled to me. I am reconciling the world to myself, not counting people's sins against them. You can be made right with me. How? Through Jesus. He says to the Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That God had Jesus die on the cross for our sins in our place, so that if we are united to Christ and believe in him, we are credited with his righteousness. We are forgiven of our sins. That's the good news that Paul said, I gotta tell humanity about this. And so that message is worth, and then this is what I would say about these chapters we've been looking at. It's worth arguing for, it's worth traveling for, it's worth suffering for, communing for, working for. When I say arguing for, that passage that's right next to the words arguing for, that's the section where Paul and Barnabas were debating with the people who were saying circumcision saves you. There were people that were saying, you've got to obey all the laws of Moses in order to be saved. And Paul and Barnabas thought it was worth traveling and debating to try to make sure that we get this right. No, you are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, not by works of the law. They thought that was worth talking through. They thought that was worth debating. The gospel is worth traveling for. Obviously, we've had maps throughout this series. For those of you who've been here, Paul goes just from city to city to city telling people about Jesus. Why does he keep traveling? He gets a thing, good thing going. He's telling these people about Jesus, and then he leaves and goes and tells another city. And then he leaves that city and goes and tells another city. Why? Because there's another city of people that don't know yet. And it's worth traveling for. It's worth suffering for. There are lots of sufferings in these chapters. But I just put up that one passage where he was in Philippi. And they arrested him and they threw him in prison. And around midnight, he's in prison and he starts singing worship songs to God because he thought the gospel was worth suffering for. The gospel is worth communing for. Communing is sort of a weird word. We don't use a whole lot, but I'm just, I was, what I meant by that is as Paul goes from place to place and as he's sharing the gospel, um, it's affecting not just people's relationship with God, but people's relationship with one another. That when the gospel is rightly preached, it's not just individual people who become reconciled to God, but it, there, it causes there to be communities of people who are reconciled to God. Families, churches that are reconciled to God. And so I put the, in that little section, I put the, like where he stayed with Lydia and where the church all met together in Lydia's house and where they call them the brothers. Like, like there are these people that just became Christians not too long ago and all of a sudden they're called brothers. Like they're all a family. 
that the gospel causes community, that these people who are being reconciled to God, if God becomes your father, then like a bonus, what happens in that moment that God becomes your father is the other people for whom God has become their father, they become your brothers and sisters. And so when we see Paul going through here, we see it's not just a bunch of individual stuff going on. It's like a communal thing that's happening. And then lastly, the gospel is worth working for. And obviously Paul does a lot of work. He puts a lot of effort and a lot of energy into this missionary trip. But the passage that I put up there was the time where he went to Corinth and he worked as a tent maker in order to fund his ability to tell people about Jesus. And so the truth that God has made a way for sinful us to be in right relationship with him, not judged for our sins, and that that can happen by faith in Jesus Christ, that news is so beautiful and so important. Everybody should know about it. And that's kind of the point of Acts 15, 16, 17, and 18. Paul realized this is so important. Everybody needs to know this. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this series. I thank you for sending our brother Paul ahead of us. And then we learn these things from his life. I pray that if there's anybody here in this room who is maybe coming to terms with their own wickedness and realizing like, yeah, wow, I give myself a pass, but not when other people do it, (laughs) which is what wicked people would do, right? That's what we do. And so if there's anybody here who realizes they're sinful and yet has not turned to you for the solution, has not turned to you to go, how can I be reconciled to you, God? How can I be forgiven by you? I just pray that there would be people who would trust in Jesus and, and come to know you even today. And I pray for those of us who do know you. And I thank you that the gospel is worth traveling for and suffering for and debating for and working for and gathering together in groups for. And I pray you'd help us to do that, that we would gather and that we would go through our difficult times and that we would move around and we would say who we need to say and we'd have the conversations we need to have and we'd put the effort forth so that more and more people would know that you are reconciling the world to yourself. And so they may be reconciled to you. We love you. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.